This is The Guardian. Today, Sue Gray's report into parties in Downing Street was once expected to be the killer blow for Boris Johnson's premiership. What did it deliver? It started like this. Boris Johnson has apologised and one of his senior aides has quit over a video showing Downing Street staff joking about a Christmas party. I've just seen reports on Twitter that there was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognise those reports? <laughs> What's the answer? At first, it was just one alleged party. There was no party and that, and that no Covid rules were broken and that is what I have been repeatedly assured. But it was enough for an internal investigation commissioned by the Prime Minister, and it fell on the shoulders of one woman. Sue Gray, the second most senior official at the Department for Leveling Up, has carried out previous high-profile investigations. Suddenly in the new year, evidence of rule-breaking was leaking out everywhere. Downing Street has apologised to the Queen for two parties held by staff in Number 10 the night before Prince Philip's funeral in April. Eight months ago, one of Boris Johnson's aides turned out of this shop, trailing them a suitcase full of wine. Members of the Tory party began speaking out. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. Then suddenly, the Metropolitan Police, having declined to get involved before, decided that they should investigate Downing Street after all. Boris Johnson welcomed the move, saying it would bring clarity. Fines were eventually issued. The Prime Minister and the Chancellor are facing calls to resign tonight after being told they will face fines for breaking lockdown rules by attending a party in Downing Street. New images emerged. In the photographs, the Prime Minister can be seen with a drink in his hand, his red box to his side. Also in the pictures are several other people standing close together, also raising glasses. On the table in front of them are open bottles of wine and snacks. But through all the anger and disgust, the government kept coming back to its central message. Wait for the Sue Gray report. We've got to leave the report to the independent uh, investigator, as he knows. Sue Gray, Sue Gray, Sue Gray, Sue Gray will decide. You've got to wait for that to come up. And yesterday, it finally landed. The headlines live from Westminster. Number 10 confirms Boris Johnson has now received Sue Gray's report into lockdown-breaking parties held in Downing Street and Whitehall. But will it make any difference? From The Guardian, I'm Nosheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, red wine up the walls, drunken vomiting and 4am finishes. What the Sue Gray report reveals about Boris Johnson's government during Covid. Peter Walker, you're a political correspondent for The Guardian and you're there in the thick of it in the House of Commons. As we talk to you now, it is Wednesday morning and everyone in Westminster is waiting for one thing, Sue Gray's report. What is the atmosphere like? Um, It is Sue Gray Day. The atmosphere is febrile, to use the enormous cliché. But it is true. I mean, there's a lot of people milling around. I just went for a bit of a wander and had to kind of look around. One of the interesting things I found is that in one bit of Parliament, basically, I couldn't get any 4G reception on my phone. I think everybody's just feverishly checking their phones for updates because at the moment, no one quite knows 
when the report will land and then of course what it's going to say and it, it's it's a really really big moment i mean you forget that the interim report that sue gray did came on january the 31st so it's been a long long wait so so people i think are eager for whatever is for them either good or bad news is it fair to say from you wandering the corridors from what you've seen and what you've heard that labor mps are waiting in glee for this report and perhaps conservative ones much more intrepidation I think it's almost a bit more mixed than that. I think the kind of trenches have been dug. So with a lot of Conservative MPs, they know where they are. And I, it's almost weirdly, it's gone on for so long that people have had a chance to decide what they think. And I think a lot of Conservative MPs are going to see this as a moment where they have to make up their minds. But, you know, for quite a lot of others, they've already have made their minds up. Labour, it's a bit tricky because obviously they've got this slight complication of Keir Starmer also facing his own police investigation. So they don't necessarily want to make that much play of it. There's plenty of people in Labour who think that the damage from Partygate has been done and cost of living is an area where they can, you know, cause a lot more trouble for the Tories. It's 11 o'clock. The headlines live from Westminster. Number 10 confirms Boris Johnson has now received Sue Gray's report into lockdown-breaking parties held in Downing Street and Whitehall. Peter, what does a day like this look like for a political correspondent? And <laughs> Pure chaos. How does it feel? I mean, as you can probably tell from like the noise around me, there's people are getting ready. It's something we've kind of known is coming for quite a long time. You know, even though we haven't necessarily known until this morning what particular day it was going to be. For me, it's kind of why you do the job. It's going to be big news. It's going to be exciting. You know, it might be a letdown, but that's the kind of perils of the uh, of the job. You know, if you look back at it, if you try and put it in as much context as you can, this is a big day. This is a prime minister who has already become the first prime minister we know of in office to be fined for breaking the law and has also presided over an office which has very possibly had the most COVID fines of any address in the UK. And we're going to get a senior civil servant, which, you know, judging by the interim report Gray put out, laying out this culture of kind of reckless abandonment and drinking and rule breaking in number 10 at a period when the rest of the country was obeying the rules really, really carefully. So, you know, we've been slightly normalised to it, but this is a really, really big moment. The report, which is likely to contain more photos of illegal gatherings, is due to be released imminently. Yeah, it's just come out in the last few seconds. So, um... Let's have a, a quick look. So we know there are some new photographs in it, as we've been talking about earlier. Jonathan Friedland, you're a Guardian columnist. You've had a couple of hours to digest this report now. What's in it? Well, it's a very detailed report. It's 37 pages long. There's photographs in there too. She sets out how she investigated herself, 16 events, and uh, she then gives blow-by-blow detail on many of these parties, setting out how they came about, who invited who, what they were called, were they announced as just a leaving do or drinks, what language was used to describe them, and then gets into the detail very specifically about who turned up, when, exactly what times people arrived, what times they left, and of course making a particular point of, of when the Prime Minister was in attendance in the cases where he was. And then there's a conclusion where she draws together her own judgment and assessment uh, of what happened. So it is a classic civil service report, but instead of it being into, you know, a terrible miscarriage of justice or a lapse in national security, it is instead about cheese, wine and nibbles. And so there is a sort of absurdity that runs through the whole document. And yet we all know why the stakes were so high and why it mattered so much. What was your initial reaction reading it? My first reaction is that if this had come out 
before the slew of stories that drip, drip, dripped into the public consciousness, this would have been so devastating for the Prime Minister that I think it would have led Tory MPs to turn on him and remove him. But its impact has really been blunted by the fact that it has come out over a period of months, really, so that most of its revelations didn't pack that punch of surprise that you kind of need in politics, that shock value that makes people feel something new has happened. Instead, it's confirmed the worst impression we had of this Prime Minister and this Downing Street under him. The report includes detail about behaviour at some of the events, including people drinking to excess and being sick. It also describes a party that took place on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral, which continued until four o'clock in the morning. It's provided new colour, so there's red wine on the walls and on the photocopy paper. There is something, an institution known as Wine Time Fridays. People got so drunk that they were throwing up and two people had an altercation as if this was, you know, Weatherspoons on a Friday night rather than the seat of government. So there's all that colour. There is a sentence that, again, if it had appeared right at the beginning, maybe would have been devastating. In the in Sue Gray's conclusion, she says, the senior leadership at the centre, both political and official, must bear responsibility for this culture. So if there's no longer the shock and the fury that you said that was needed to address what Boris Johnson has done, what have we learned overall? Well, I think we've learned that this was a, a culture that was you know, a frat house kind of freshers week culture where people are just expecting to drink and be socialising at work. I mean, people leaving unbelievably late. Obviously, she's got access to Grey to Downing Street logs. So she has the exact times people went through doors and exits. And it's, you know, sometimes after midnight, but sometimes two, three, four in the morning. You know, the dates through the report, it's May, it's June, it's November. When anybody leaves, it seems to be the cue to turn the place into a kind of club. And it shows uh, Boris Johnson essentially playing uh, what would look like the role kind of a host at this event. Some surprised that Boris Johnson wasn't fined for the events uh, at that uh, party. I mean, the other thing we've learned is that the police uh, set a bar so high and so opaque that somehow Boris Johnson was able to be present at multiple illegal gatherings and yet in the eyes of the police to be there legally. And that is quite a feat, is this idea that he was there at the beginning, he said a few words, and then he went, as it were, before it turned illegal. So in other words, it was quite well behaved and it was a kind of work event when he was there. Then he left and then they all got raucous and got hammered. Well, one thing that also stood out is Sue Gray's apparent refusal to investigate the gathering in Downing Street when Abba's the winner takes it all was sort of blaring from the windows and it was a day that Dominic Cummings had resigned from number 10. What was Gray's explanation and did you buy it? It's a really odd one, actually, her defence of, of this. She explains that she was looking into this um, gathering. She was aware of it enough to look into it. Uh, but then the Metropolitan Police um, themselves announced that they were going to investigate. And she said at that point, her information gathering was pretty limited because she'd only uh, just begun looking into 
that one, to quote the Carpenters rather than Abbott there, she'd only just begun, and then the Metropolitan Police announced they were going to do it. So she sort of downed tools. She said, I, at this point, I stopped my investigation, given the need to avoid any prejudice or, you know, prejudicing uh, the police investigation, although even that, I think, is hazy. Then when the police announced a matter of days ago, just last week, that they were not going to conduct any further investigation into this event, itself hazy, by the way, she then decided it was not appropriate um, or proportionate to do so. I, I think there's questions both for the Metropolitan Police and of her to ask, well, if you know there was a party and you know he was there, the Prime Minister, why isn't it appropriate? Can I, can I just say to the House, I expect moderate and temperate language yes. as we come to the statement. Prime Minister! Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm grateful to Sue Gray for her report today, and I want to thank her for the work that she's done. I also thank the Metropolitan Police for completing their investigation. And I want to begin today by renewing my apology to the House. Johnny, we finally heard what Boris Johnson had to say in his statement. What was his approach? He was trying to do his contrite act, which is familiar to people who went to those kinds of schools of the boy who summoned to the headmaster's study. He slightly dips his head, all but bites his lower lip and promises he's very, very no, sorry. Please. And I also want to say, Mr Speaker, above all, that I take full responsibility for everything that took place on my watch. But beyond the sort of body language of contrition, I don't think there was any real contrition because he said... He sticks with this view. He said, I've been as surprised and disappointed as anyone else. You know, I've been appalled by the behaviour that I'm hearing about. I had no knowledge of those subsequent proceedings because I simply wasn't there. And I have been as surprised and disappointed as anyone else in this house. He even tried to say at one point, it's only eight days out of 600 days since the whole pandemic thing kicked off. It's it's important to set out uh, that... Over a period of about 600 days, gatherings on a total of eight dates have been found to be in breach of the regulations. Just an amazing idea because it's, you know, the burglar who steals, you know, a precious family heirloom and says, why does no one ever talk about all the things I didn't steal? So I I thought, apart from the the sort of idiom of apology, using words like I'm humble and uh, and all that. The actual content was not very much. And that became especially true in the later exchanges. Uh, the minute he was into back and forth with, for example, the leader of the opposition and others, he was then back in attack mode. He wasn't, you know, I've changed at all. We don't come to the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. Yeah! Thank you, Mr Speaker. How did Labour leader Keir Starmer respond to all of that? Well, he was good and and sort of sombre and said something bigger than just the, you know, the immediate circumstances is at stake, that this is a symbol of our democracy and our system of government, the black door of number 10, and you have tainted it and besmirched it. The door of number 10 Downing Street is one of the great symbols of our democracy. Those who live behind it exercise great power, but they do so knowing their stay is temporary. A very good, memorable line when he said uh, that you know people who are trying to claim, well, look, Boris Johnson's done okay. He said they have set the bar lower 
than a snake's belly and then they expect us to cheer when somehow he stumbles over i've been clear what leadership looks like i haven't broken any rules and any attempt to compare a perfectly legal takeaway while working to this catalogue of criminality looks even more ridiculous today do you think it made any difference that starmer himself was slightly compromised well it certainly gave Boris Johnson's a place to go, which he did immediately. And he said, you know, the gaseous zeppelins of Starmer's pomposity had been punctured. And yet after months of his, frankly, sanctimonious obsession, uh, Mr Speaker, the great gaseous zeppelin of his pomposity has been permanently punctured. And then just uh, by the accusation that Starmer himself had been drinking beer in, in a Labour Party meeting in Durham and called him Sir Beer Corner. And yet, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to mince my words, I've got to say this, Sir Beer Corner, Mr Speaker, is currently failing to hold himself to the same high standards that he demanded of me. He felt pretty cheap stuff. It's sort of line he'd have used in one of his Telegraph's columns back in the day. It has done exactly what Labour people feared, which is it has enabled Boris Johnson at least to attempt to muddy the waters. I should say as well, Sue Gray gave him a little bit of a lifeline because she, in effect, praised him for having made some changes since her own so-called update, her interim report at the end of January. And that he was able to say, look, she, you know, the headmaster has praised me. From everything you're saying, it seemed like a pretty standard Johnson performance, cartoonish humility, head down, apologising, but really sort of throwing everyone else under the bus and saying he's taking responsibility without actually taking any responsibility. But was there anything in Gray's report that put him on the back foot? Not anything I think that he hasn't already been challenged over, with with one exception, I think. And that was this line about mistreating um, the staff, the security and cleaning staff. Again, though, it was about people there rather than him directly. But Sue Gray talked about multiple examples of a lack of respect and poor treatment of security and cleaning staff. This was unacceptable, she writes. Boris Johnson was very happy to say that he regarded it as intolerable. And you did feel a little bit about of his sort of class background there coming. You know, he comes from a class where there is no greater sin than being beastly to the servants. It's just not done. And I would like to apologise to those members of staff. And I expect anyone who behaved in that way to apologise to them as well. I think that was something newish. Otherwise, he had a straight back defence for everything, which is everything I attended was legit when I was there. You know, and as for what happened afterwards, thanks to Sue Gray for laying laying it all out there. But obviously, I didn't know anything about this. That's been his line. And what about the Tory MPs sitting behind Johnson? Now, they are the key to his survival. How did they seem to be reacting? Well, one thing that was noticeable as the discussion after the initial statement went on, as the debate went on, was that how few of them there were. They did thin out those benches. That's usually telling. That suggests they don't want to be... Uh, tarred particularly with this. They don't massively want to defend it. The ones who stayed more or less did defend it, with the exception of a couple of usual suspects. So I was very surprised to read in the Times the intimation that he may have asked Sue Gray not to publish the report at all. Is there any truth to that suggestion, Prime Minister? 
I thought one thing that was interesting was the member of new parliament for Newcastle under Lyme, Tory newly elected, I think in 2019, asked a very pointed question saying, was there any truth uh, in the claim that had been reported in the Times that Boris Johnson had asked or pressured, leaned on Sue Gray not to release her report? And he delivered a very pointed non-denial. He did not take the opportunity to deny that. Mr Speaker, what uh, Sue Gray has published is entirely uh, for Sue Gray, and uh, and it is a a wholly independent uh, report, Mr Speaker. That was an uncomfortable moment. A couple of uh, rebel Tory backbenchers. Otherwise, either absence or support. Coming up. What happened when Boris Johnson faced the press and his own MPs? Peter, you were really excited when I spoke to you earlier. Now, how has your Sue Gray day been? (laughs) It's been really interesting. The kind of bit of the story that I did was that I was doing what's known in journalism terms as the gut, where I basically read the entire pages and tried to trace it so readers would get a sense of what was going on. I was reading it in the kind of hull. And it's a lot of the details that are most kind of damning, really. Like, over only an 11-month period, it looks pretty bad. Prime Minister, um, people in this room told us that there were no parties. People from your press office told us there were no parties. And we now know that parties took place in the press office. Were those people told to lie to us? Just a few hours after the Prime Minister's statement to the Commons, where Johnson was in this very confident, rambunctious mood, he had a few questions for journalists as well. What happened at the press conference? At the press conference, he very much reverted to Johnson type and didn't really answer any questions. There were some very, very specific ones. Prime Minister, you say that Sue Gray, that no um, individual gathering was swept under the carpet by Sue Gray, but there was one very striking omission, which was the gathering in your flat on November 13th, 2020. About, for example, what he knew potentially in advance about why Sue Gray didn't investigate this one particular party, whether he had any uh, hand in it, and he very much dodged those. Um, The first I saw the the report and... uh, uh, when it, we, we got it at 10 o'clock, I think shortly after 10 o'clock uh, this morning. And he's also asked kind said, of more general questions about what he felt, if he felt any kind of responsibility or like shame. And he very much didn't really veer off the script that was in the common statement earlier, which is, you know, yes, I take responsibility, but it was kind of mistakes were made. It was all fairly general. He didn't really say anything drastically new. Ultimately, of course, it's not the journalists and it is the Tory MPs who will decide Johnson's fate. It's late in the day now, and you've just been outside where the 1922 committee has been having its meeting with him. Do we know what he said to them? Probably the first Tory MP to uh, emerge was Jonathan Gullis, one of the Stoke uh, MPs, who's a very uh, loyalist to uh, Johnson, and he gave us a flavour of what took place inside the room and what he thought about it. Did the PM get a universally positive response? Yes, I've not heard any dissenting voices and it was a very big uh, round of applause when uh, he came into the room and, uh, as I say, he struck the right tone throughout. So there was this kind of unofficial Downing Street briefing of what they say from what we have to colloquially describe as allies in the room. And it does seem that um, the last time he spoke to the 1922 committee, just after he'd had the fine and had to give this 
fairly comprehensive apology to the Commons. He went before the 1922 committee and kind of not quite took it all back, but joked with them and made jibes at people. And that went down quite badly with some Tories. This time, he was supposedly quite contrite. One quote we're given is, we got things wrong, I got things wrong, I'm ultimately responsible. He apparently described the Grey Report as like having a mirror held up to the workings of government in number 10. It was mainly loyalists there. There were a few critics who turned up, but it seemed that the questions afterwards were fairly general. It wasn't the toughest gig he's ever done, but he seemed to play it tone-wise slightly better than he did in the past. And yet we did keep hearing about all these unnamed Tory MPs in the press these past few months who were supposedly furious about these parties. They were worried that it would cost them the next election. And they kept being told and kept saying that they were going to wait, nonetheless, to see this report, (laughs) have it in their hands before making their move. And now they have it. So why aren't we seeing a move to remove Johnson? I think it's a tricky one, one of which is just the sheer political inertia that it's taken so long. These decisions, when leaders are removed, tend to be taken quite quickly. The momentum builds quite fast. And this has gone on so long, it's quite difficult. The other obvious answer is the lack of a agreed or even one or two kind of very credible candidates amongst Tory ministers to take over. But the final one, which I think is quite interesting, is that the full Segre report didn't, in fundamental terms, tell us what we didn't already know. Do you think the report has shifted the mood at all? Without wishing to give a slightly unsatisfactory answer, I think it's a bit bit too early to, to, to tell, really, because... I mean, we're about to have a recess of a week, which is the convenience down the street is quite good. So it depends, really. You know, the classic thing is that Conservative MPs go back to their constituencies, go on visits and get emails and stuff like that. And if their inboxes are suddenly full of, you know, locals saying, I can't believe this took place, this is grim, maybe some will come back and put their letters in to try and get Johnson removed. My guess is probably not, but there seems to be this more general sense of despondency amongst some Tory MPs that they... They kind of think Johnson isn't going anywhere, but they they can read the polls as much as anyone can, and they realise his standing, and their standing with the country is quite badly damaged. Johnny, at the end of all of this, and this report that's been coming for months, how much damage do you think Partygate has actually done to the government? I think it's done a huge amount of damage to public belief in this government and indeed in government itself. So in this government, I think people uh, think he's a liar. The polling says that they think he's a liar uh, and that they don't trust him. And therefore, that taint spreads to everyone who then defends him and who speaks in his favour. And therefore, that spread right through the cabinet and every Tory MP who hasn't condemned him. Uh, But I do think it goes deep in that. I do think it means that this plays to a terrible cynicism people have about politicians, that they all lie, uh, and you can't believe a word they say. Uh, And the constant attacks on Keir Starmer over so-called Beergate add to that, oh, they're all as bad as each other. And so my real worry is, and we have no idea what will happen with monkeypox, but even if there's another pandemic in 5, 10, 50, 100 years, this has created a precedent that will be remembered, that the government tell you to do things, but they themselves won't obey those rules. And that is really bad. It is an asset and a resource for public health, trust in government. And if you erode trust in government, it's very hard to do what you need to do in a public health situation, in a public you know, defence emergency. You need people to believe 
those people who set the rules and they are not believed. And so that is really long-term corrosion of something very valuable and very important. Johnny, thank you so much. Thank you, Nosheen. That was Peter Walker and Jonathan Friedland. You can hear more from Jonathan on Politics Weekly America every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. This week, he will be covering the Texas school shootings, which you can read more about at theguardian.com, where you should also head if you'd like to catch up with all our Partygate coverage. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Sammy Kent and Ruth Abrahams. Sound design is by Axel Coutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.